Welcome to Your Voice with Dr. Susan, a podcast featuring interesting interviews on a variety of topics. On today's show, I am so pleased to present my conversation with Joy Reid at Hunter College at a conference sponsored by the New York City chapter of the National Association of Social Workers. I am so thrilled and honored to be here with Joy. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I always love to talk about the consequences of politics. I think it's so important and people don't think about it. So I thought I would take the opportunity to really ask about what you've seen in terms of the changes since the election. And one of the things I was wondering is what changed for you personally and professionally in terms of your passions and your interest and what you're actually covering now and how how did it change for you? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of us um, that work in this business um, that are partly in the prognosticating business, we learned um, as much as I am uh, into data, I'm sort of obsessed with data, is that um, after the election, I've had to be less obsessed with data. Because what happened during the 2016 election is that the data and um, the sort of anecdotal evidence of what was happening were completely discontiguous. They weren't they weren't on this, you know, they weren't aligned. And so I think those of us who were really fixated on the data really missed what was sort of the biggest underlying trend um, that was taking place in the U.S., which was this tremendous really racial backlash to the Obama era and this consolidation of voting on the basis of race. And just we missed the trend that was going in one direction when we thought because of the data it was going in another. So I think becoming less reliant on data and more on what you're actually seeing and hearing is, is what's happened after the election. So are you talking more directly to people and really going out there and listening or having them come in? Do you find that? I mean, it's interesting because we did a lot of that during the campaign. So what's interesting is when we would go out, like we went to Lorraine, Ohio, and we talked to steel workers, and what they were telling us um, was, again, it was completely the opposite of what the data was telling us was happening in Ohio. Um, and we definitely believed what we were hearing, but you couldn't really tell the extent to which what we were hearing people say. Um, we also did um, you know, the same thing in Philadelphia, and we fielded these sort of multi-ethnic, almost focus groups of people. And all the doubt that you were hearing about the outcome we all thought was going to happen, it really didn't match the, the numbers. And so I think a lot of us thought it was interesting. It was sort of anthropologically interesting, but it wasn't determinative. Turns out it was determinative. Very interesting. It reminds me of qualitative versus quantitative yeah. research. And sometimes when people were just doing too much quantitative, yeah. it didn't really get to what was actually happening. And you need that qualitative in order to hear what the issues. And that's what it sounds like that uh, that you were experiencing. Yeah. yeah. One of the things I'm going to talk about today is that the longer term trends, like if you then, you know, zoom out from this election and look 20 years or 30 years or 50 years at what's been happening, it's sort of obvious that this is the direction we're moving in. And I think for a lot of Americans, we sort of came to think think of the idea of sort of multiculturalism as the norm, when really it might have been the blip, and that the election of someone like Barack Obama felt like this is where we were going, the direction we were headed, when in fact it might have actually been a sort of blip on the map that was not representative of where the country was going overall, but that it was sort of a moment in time that was that was unique, uh, and that what we're seeing now is really more the normative trend. And I think for a lot of people that's been jarring and it's been kind of frightening, um, and so they're trying to figure out what to do, because there are real implications for public policy, for the work, you know, that people like yourself do that are working in the trenches with people who have needs. Um, We're a society with people with tremendous needs, and we're moving in a direction where our politics does not match those needs, and in fact, in a lot of ways, works in the opposite direction. So we're in a pretty precarious time. 
for a lot of people, it's been shocking. And you talked about the stress. How do you deal with the stress of it all? Um, you know, working. <laughs> right, working. Yeah, I actually work through the stress. I mean, my family, obviously, I have two voting age kids. I have kids six, uh, 17, 19, and 21. So two of my kids voted in this election, but all three of my kids experienced the tremendous stress. Um, you know, three African-American teenagers and young adults who are um, who really grew up in the Obama era and sort of grew up in that bubble of the Obama era. And I remember after the election, my 17-year-old, after saying, when are we moving to England, um, then said, you know, half my life or most of my life, Obama has been the president. And he, he said, I actually feel pretty lucky because younger kids won't even know what that's like. And so I think just dealing with in, our, in my own home, you know, the stress and strain, and then sort of on a wider level, I can't tell you how many people I run into in airports, in the supermarket who say, you know, basically cable news is counseling me through my grief, you know, so you sort of feel responsible to kind of make people feel sane. But first, you have to feel sane yourself. So really getting a handle on what happened and why has helped me feel sane. And what's been your advice to your kids? My advice to them has been to, to again, hold on to the fact that nothing is permanent, um, that, you know, the era they grew up in was real, too, uh, that this isn't the only way this country can be, um, and to just always be vigilant about who and what's around you. You have to be realistic. I don't uh, really like to Pollyannize my children. They know what the risks are out there. They're black children. I have two black boys. Uh, and they grow up, they've grown up with the reality of Trayvon Martin. They've grown up with the reality of Michael Brown, who are kids their age. So they know um, very much um, what the risks are to their lives in this society. But they also know that there is an upside, that there is an Obama, that there are possibilities. So we try to give them a balance, my husband and I. Try to keep it balanced. We don't want it to be too dark and them to be too afraid, but we want them to be realistic. So we sort of, we try to be honest. I know that you talk all the time and that you're talking, but is there anything that you could take that you think that you might want to be able to express that you don't really have the opportunity to do? Um, you know, it's interesting. That's a very interesting question because the show that I do and the work that I do is really so focused on politics um, and public policy that that's kind of what I immerse myself in. Um, but it just so happens that I'm extremely nerdy and that's what I'm also interested in. So when I'm reading, you know, I'm still reading books about history and about politics anyway. But I do have my guilty pleasures. I wish that I could do a show that's all about the TV shows I love. You know, my kids and I, we all have different shows we watch right now. We're into Into the Badlands, not to promote it, um, but The Walking Dead. Like we watch like a lot of sort of fantasy-based TV, and I have a lot of fun with kind of the Hollywood world. I do watch my Shonda Rhimes shows, so I know all about them if you'd like to talk to me about it. <laughs> so what would be something that people would be surprised to learn about you that they would never even guess? Uh-huh, that's funny. Uh, would be surprised to guess about me. Um, I guess they would be surprised to know that I am absolutely obsessed with zombies and with the concept of zombies. I think that um, sort of figuring out what would happen in that kind of apocalypse is like, I'm obsessed with it. I will watch any movie with a zombie in it or with a zombie theme that is one of my little what do you think what is it about zombies that really fascinates you i don't know i just think that when you when you look at a world a post-apocalyptic world the fact that the really scary people are the are the living humans and not the dead is sort of a fascinating you know sort of study and what we do and uh having grown up in colorado which is a lot more spread out and having lived in florida which is also more spread out now living in a dense city like new york you think about you know sort of do our red state blue state values get reversed in a situation where a high density city population is actually riskier and there are more people around to threaten you i just find the whole thing fascinating it's sort of a human study uh but with zombies (laughs) that's fascinating that's so interesting that's great what's the question that you would love to ask people that you don't wow 
Um, you know, I'd interview Donald Trump if I could, but I would love to sort of delve into the why of people's sort of weird racial anxieties. What would you ask him if he was here and you could ask him one or two questions? What would you ask him? I would ask Donald Trump um, a couple of things. One, and I don't think anyone has asked him this question. What was his role when his father was running, you know, was, was operating public housing or housing in New York? And what was his role in describing Meaning his father or Donald's? His father, Donald's father. And he was a part of that company. And I think one of the defining sort of things about Donald Trump is his relationship with his father. And one of the things that they did together was discriminate against people in housing in New York. And no one's ever asked him to account for that. I would love for him to account for some of the early things he did. Um, I'd like to ask him whether he genuinely believes the conspiracy theories he said about Barack Obama or what's behind his sort of obsession with him, his obsession with that era, his obsession with Barack Obama, the man. I'd, I'd be fascinated to know what he'd say. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wonder if he would actually agree to do an interview knowing those questions, though. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't think so, right? Do you? We ask him. Uh, he's, he's welcome to come on my show, AM Joy, anytime. Donald, you're welcome to come on the show. You have an open invitation, but you're going to have to talk about the Central Park Five, and you're going to have to talk about housing discrimination and stuff he sort of gets, he skates by on his entire past. And, you know, I, I didn't grow up in New York. I was born in New York, and I moved back when I was about 18. And it was an era when if you live there, you know a different Donald Trump than the rest of the country that knows The Apprentice. And it's a darker sort of Donald Trump. And I, I don't think that he's really had to deal with that as a public figure. And so what do you think, in your experience, has been the public's response on um, somebody who is really representing not positive, not acceptance, but exclusion? And he's very critical. There's this belief, I think, especially in our profession here in social work, to do good. And we all aim to do good. Unfortunately, what's happened is a person who has not had that history and doesn't really relate that message of doing good, we've promoted him to the highest position in this country. It contradicts our belief system. And I don't know if you're experiencing that and what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, I think people are experienced initially panic uh, and depression after the election, at least, you know, the percentage of Americans who were not happy with the outcome. Um, I think we're so shocked by it that it took a few weeks to even accept that it was real. And then after the inauguration, I think it's that panic and fear turned to rage. Um, what I'm seeing out there are people who are angry that this is their country now. They don't accept the idea that we're going to be the sort of malign force in the world, that we're going to withdraw from the sort of the West, you know, with the capital W, that we're going to be the country that deports supports our, uh, our immigrants and that is cruel to moms with American-born children. It's cruel to Muslims. Like people are having a real reaction to that that I think is healthy in a way. I think um, electing a black president lulled us into a false sense of security about who we are as a country. Um, and I think Americans have been very low to confront our own history and who we are and what we are. And Donald Trump is making us confront it. It's making us look in the mirror and see the reality and confront the reality and do something Something about it. So I think in the end, you know, it's we have a pretty durable democracy and it'll survive Donald Trump. Um, what I wonder if can be reversed is this idea that we've created a celebrity presidency um, and whether we can go back to a sort of professional presidency after electing a celebrity, um, because that does set a a bar. It sets a marker and it says you may not have to know anything about being president to be president. And that's a weird place to be. I don't know if we can go back. I mean, maybe the next president will be an even bigger celebrity, right? And if that's the reality, then we all have to adjust to what that means. 
Now, you're having an impact, your show, and you personally have an impact in terms of the media and really covering things, and as you said earlier, in terms of looking at what people are actually saying, not just the data. If you could send a message to the media, what would that be? What would you want to see more of happening in the media? Um, I think the media has to... It sounds odd because media people are fairly cynical, but I think media people need to be more skeptical. There are certain ticks that the media has that they don't seem to be able to help. There's this quest for normalcy. The media is is like a, a sort of compass that's forcing itself north all the time. And media people want to find some way to make everything normal, to make every situation normal. But the example that I would give them is that, you know, 10 years ago, Turkey was a normal democratic country. Uh, it was a country that got led into NATO because it was a normal democratic country. Country. It's now an autocracy, a completely authoritarian state that jails journalists, that doesn't allow dissent, uh, and that had an attempted coup. That can happen extremely quickly. Um, my husband and I recently um, visited Cuba, a country that also used to be a totally democratic, open, free society that is not. And democracy is so tenuous, uh, and Americans, I don't think, understand how tenuous it is. We have a false sense of security about our democracy, and the media is so, to me, unskeptical and so determined to normalize everything, uh, including things like war, which shouldn't be normalized. It isn't normal to go to war, and people who've been warriors, who've been in the military, know that. So I, I'm worried that the media is going to try so hard to make all of this normal that we will quietly sort of walk into an autocratic system and wake up and wonder what happened. Well, hopefully, like your show, my show, we won't allow that to happen. Is there anything else that you want to add in terms of today's the social work day? Uh, what kind of message, and I know you're going to be speaking soon, but what else would you want to take for social workers to take away from your presentation today? Well, I mean, there's no greater calling than helping other people. You know, I just talk on TV. You talk on TV, but you also have a whole career of helping people. It's the most important thing that you can do. Um, I think there's a great calling involved in it. So I'm really um, just honored to be here. And I, you know, I, in a way, sort of envy the the sort of uh, ability to get feedback from real uh, advancement that you can make in someone's lives um, of people who do things like social work. Um, you know, social work is really what Dr. King did. It's working with individual people to try to improve their real lives. Um, I can talk about the theory and sort of the politics and the underlying um, sort of direction we're going in a big picture, but I don't help an individual on an individual basis. I, I want to challenge you on that. I don't know. I think you do through the lens because I think a lot of people that watch your show are actually, and what you talk about actually helps them individually. So I think you are doing it. I really do. I think that you're doing it. And that's what media does. And I think, you know, I, I want to thank you for your show and thank you for being here today, but you're doing it. You're also doing a form of social work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I really believe that. Well, so I, thank I you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add? Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank right. you. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. If you are interested in seeing the full interview with today's guest, you can find us on YouTube at Your Voice with Dr. Susan. Thank you for listening to Your Voice with Dr. Susan. If you have a topic that you would like to hear about or you would like to be on the show, you can send an email to yourvoice at drsusan.nyc. Again, that's yourvoice at drsusan.nyc. Thank you.